it's a mind-bending conversation to have the people who built something so sophisticated, so innovative, so powerful, to tell us they can't remove swastikas. You know, for kicks, Matthew, when this podcast is over, you should try to upload some copyrighted content to Facebook. Try it. See what happens. See how long it's up there. Try to post uh, a Rick at the Rick Astley song. Try to post something that's not in the public domain. It will get taken down so fast, your head will spin. But post a swastika, post something racist about black people, post something hostile about immigrants, and watch what happens or what doesn't happen. And so the reason why this isn't fixed ultimately is because the company continues to prioritize you know, profits over all else. Hello, this is Books Driving Change with me, Fatty Bishop. And today I'm talking with Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, who has written a powerful new book called It Could Happen Here, Why America is Tipping from Hate to the Unthinkable and How We Can Stop It. Jonathan, I just wanted to start by asking you, you know, our audience is people who are interested in public service and trying to help build the world back better than it was before we went into the pandemic as we come out of it. In a sentence, why should they read your book? First of all, Matthew, thank you for having me here. So I wrote this book, uh, you know, after more than 20 years in public life. And I've had the benefit of working both as an entrepreneur and as an executive uh, in the business world. I've worked in public service with two stints in government and at the White House. And now I'm serving as the CEO of one of the oldest uh, nonprofits in the United States. And I wrote this book to try to integrate lessons from all of those sectors into the work that I'm doing today. And I think this work in many ways matters more than anything I've ever done because I believe hate is a corrosive force that erodes the foundations of a democracy, that weakens the kind of support structure for a society. And I think we're facing a precipitous moment today in the United States, really in liberal democracies around the world, and rising extremism and increasing illiberalism and a kind of spreading sectarianism. All these things really challenge us in ways we haven't seen certainly in the United States, arguably ever before. And that's why I think this is a moment when if we don't roll up our sleeves, all of us, and play a part in averting uh, our country from the path we're on, I think it, it could happen here, literally. And the it you're referring to is, it, you know, it is a, a genocidal society, a society like Nazi Germany or like, Happened well, in the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda, that kind of Yeah, world. I mean, I in the book, I talk specifically about what happened in Bosnia and the former Yugoslavia. And, of course, the book opens with the story of my Jewish grandfather. Um, he was from, you know, what we would call East Germany, if you will, a little town called Bachtaburg, uh, close to Berlin. And um, essentially, when he was a young man, he never would have imagined the only country he ever knew with the rise of the Third Reich would turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, Matthew, destroy everything that he loved, slaughter almost his entire family and friends, and force him to flee this country where he would come here and one day have an American, have a grandchild in America. That would be me. 
And, you know, my wife came to this country as a political refugee from Iran. And she and her Jewish family, Iran's the only country they ever knew, never would have guessed before the rise of the Islamic Republic that one day their government would regard them as enemies of the state, destroy everything that they ever loved, and force them to flee for their lives. And they came here as refugees. And my father-in-law has grandchildren born in America. Those would be my kids and my nieces and nephews. And when we say, what's the it? I mean, I can't take for granted, knowing what happened to my Jewish grandfather from Europe or my um, Jewish father-in-law from the Middle East, that my own grandchildren will be born here in America if we don't fight for what we have. Because I think the it could be civil war. The it could be societal unrest. The it could be a kind of persecution of a minority population in ways that may seem farcical to some, but for the Jewish people, from my own family's experience, I know they happen again and again and again throughout the annals of history. And I think we're living in a moment where by, by so many measures, you can see the unraveling all around us. The level of rancor in public places like school board meetings, the degree of polarization that shows up in all of the surveys, the idea that we have not just red states and blue states or red towns and blue cities, we have like red and blue brothers and sisters. You have families divided today in ways that, again, I think are almost different than any other time in American history. And it's very worrisome. So as this unraveling seems to be upon us, I think the catalyst for it in many ways is a kind of intolerance, a kind of hate. And again, as a Jewish person, my antenna are, is tuned to this. And ADL, as the oldest anti-hate organization, is prepared for these moments. And that's why I think we've got to learn from the lessons of history, Matthew, or we're certainly doomed to repeat them. And obviously, I mean, the title is a very arresting title. Some people would say it's sensationalist, but do you feel this is something that could happen within a short period of time? Is it, is it something that you feel very worried about? Or is, there, is, that, an out, is that the sort of extreme no, I'm definitely, play? No, I don't think it's sensationalist. I am very worried. Again, if you, you know, I interviewed Barbara Walter, who's a professor uh, at Santa Clara State, and she actually has a new book out herself called How Civil War Start, and she talked about uh, how a lot of the antecedents that you see uh, in terms of civil unrest in different societies, um, there are patterns that now seem to be present here. And I interviewed Gregory Stanton, who's a retired professor from George Mason University outside D.C., who runs an organization called the Gen uh, Genocide Watch, who talked about the fact that many, again, of the attributes you see in societies that experience this kind of event seem to now be present here. So, and look, in America, we have, 300, we have 335 million people and 380 million guns. And I'm talking to you just a few weeks after uh, a, a radical Islamist took four hostages in a synagogue outside Dallas, Texas, right, wanting to free an al-Qaeda operative, consumed with, you know, conspiratorial ideas about the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And he traveled from Britain as well, hadn't he? That's right. That's right. He traveled from... Uh, Brighton, I think. Yeah. And look, I'm talking to you the same week that Tucker Carlson is running another one of his specials on the sinister George Soros, spinning up all kinds of age-old tropes about Jewish people, manipulating things behind the scenes. 
and I'm talking to you just a few days after they uh, banned the book Mouse from uh, a school district in Tennessee. You know, a, a graphic novel, a Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel of the Holocaust because they considered it, because they were concerned about the quote, as they said, the nudity in the book in this cartoon about mice. I mean, there are all these different, and you know, I'm speaking to you a few days after, uh, you know, the ADL, we track anti-Semitic incidents, Matthew. We've been doing this for more than four decades. And the levels we see today are as high as we have ever seen. Just a few days ago, we had flyering instances in six different states, uh, in Wisconsin, Texas, California, Maryland, Illinois, and maybe it was Arizona, where you had flyers dropped by a white supremacist group, the Goyim Defense League, blaming COVID-19 on the Jews. Like, I could go on and on mm. with these stories, but they're happening at such a dizzying rate. They're happening at such a blistering pace that you've, again, we do pattern recognition in, in, in places like this, and all of the signs have us very alarmed. And uh, I mean, as you spell out quite clearly in the book, I mean, from the start, ADL has always been trying to promote a society that is is fair and just for all, not just focused on how the Jewish people get treated. And, and I mean, obviously, we're seeing a lot of this hate coming, reflecting, you know, targeted at other minorities. I mean, I, I think you started yeah. yourself saying, you know, you know, standing up for Muslim community at a certain point when yeah. Trump came in. I mean, look, I'll tell you, Matthew, when this organization was founded in 1913, Jews in this country, in the United States, couldn't work in many professions. They were legally banned from buying homes in many places. They were legally prohibited from entering many universities. They were routinely discriminated against. The reason why we have all these public health institutions in the United States, like Cedar sinai Hospital or Beth Israel, is, is because the Jews founded these medical institutions because they couldn't get health care at other facilities. So the Jews suffered from what we might characterize in our current kind of nomenclature as systemic discrimination. And in that moment, in that time, a Jewish man was lynched outside of Atlanta. He was falsely accused of a crime. He was wrongfully convicted. He was hung from a tree, torn from his jail cell and hung from a tree by a mob. Again, murdered for a crime he didn't commit. And while his body still was swinging from the branch, Matthew, they set up a barbecue underneath that space and they took pictures while at the barbecue with the body you know, in the tree and gave them out as postcards, like souvenirs. And so in that moment, when that happened, several Jewish people got together and said, we need to do something about this. And they created an organization, this one, the ADL, and they wrote uh, a charter. We, you know, we would, we would probably call it a manifesto, like in our, again, current kind of nomenclature. And in it are the words that we still use today, exactly the same as our mission statement, that our purpose is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. So what's very interesting about that is you know, 110 years ago, again, the Jews didn't have political access or social standing or cultural capital. They just didn't. They, they, they were a fragmented and vulnerable and weak community whose future was very uncertain in America. Frankly, you know, Matthew, a Jewish person lived much more securely in Germany in 1913 than in America in 1913 for any number of reasons. And I say that 
because it made sense that they would create an organization to fight for their own community. But it was what we might call a bold, hairy, audacious goal, like almost a ridiculous claim to say that they would fight for others when they didn't have a leg to stand on themselves. I mean, today we talk about like intersectional notions of, you know, justice. Like the ADL was founded on that idea long before it was fashionable, long before the, the, the idea itself had been coined. Now, so when the ADL fought to make America, the ADL is the organization that exposed those uh, practices so Jews could be hired in different places. They, they worked in the Supreme Court to turn over the laws that kept Jews from buying homes. They helped to tear down the quotas that kept Jews out of universities. They did all of that. They made America a better place for its Jewish people. And then starting with the return from the Second World War, ADL was started in the 1940s fighting for civil rights for African Americans. And in the 1950s, fighting for immigration reform. And, you know, my predecessors marched literally in Selma, arm in arm with Dr. King, and stood with him in the Rose Garden. They signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. But I'll just say, when I stand up for Muslims today, against like that ridiculous Muslim ban introduced by the prior president, or when I fight for... You know, you know, immigrants from Central America or Mexico taken from their parents at the border, Matthew, it's because our mission compels us to do that work because we believe, our founders believe America would not be good for its Jews or safe for its Jews unless it was safe for all people. And it's striking. I mean, you argue, obviously, a lot in the book for allyship and intersectionality and, you know, coming together of, of different groups to, to sort of stand up against hate as one of the things that can be done to turn things around. But I guess also it is clear that maybe within each of the groups that is, you know, being targeted by haters, there, there is quite a disagreement often about whether they want to ally with other groups or or just stand on their own um, ground. And, and and do you feel like you're, you're winning that argument, that, that there is this broader anti-hate movement forming, or is it still, you know, each group out defending itself on the whole. Well, look, I think the reality is, is that we are, look, the Jewish people have prospered in this country enormously. And if you look at anti-Semitic attitudes, which the ADL has been tracking since the 1960s, mm-hmm. anti-Semitic attitudes have dropped dramatically. Dramatically. Uh, there were third party, there's third party data that suggested upwards of 40% of Americans had anti-Semitic views in the 1930s. In 1965, we did our first sentiment analysis. It was roughly 30%. So it had dropped. And now today, our analyses suggest it's roughly 10%. So that's a remarkable degree of progress. And yet, I worry because anti-Semitic incidents are absolutely on the rise. They're about more than double today than where they were in 2015, which is stunning. But if you look at the data about young people and their degrees of tolerance on issues that we might consider classic diversity, race, and faith, and gender. There is a higher degree of respect for minorities or marginalized communities we've ever seen. And you've looked at some of the major civil rights wins, Matthew, in recent years, like marriage equality would be a good example, things that would have been unimaginable literally a generation ago. And yet, I worry that today the divide is, while there are still issues, profound issues, with systemic racism, deep issues with the way that certain minorities are still, again, marginalized. I worry that the divide today increasingly is not 
black versus just black versus white. Increasingly, it's also right versus left. And that's, again, this kind of political sectarianism, this kind of polarization, which I think could lead to a conflagration here. I mean, we saw this play out in some ways on January the 6th. That was, it. That was literally, Matthew, the most, the most predictable domestic terror act in American history because we knew what they were going to do. And the idea that men with makeshift weapons would rampage through our capital trying to kidnap and kill legislators, that is, a, that is a new threshold that's been breached and a frightening one, I think. And that's why I think we've all got to be very, not just vigilant, but, but worried. And, and you basically take issue with people both on the right and the left, the extremes who you know, are hating. <laughs> Look, I must tell you, Matthew, like both sides have, can express a degree of intolerance and hostility. Some may point out, the, the, look, I, I would liken it to the following. I think you see kind of extremism on the right that's like a bomb cyclone. We just got hit with a blizzard over the weekend, two feet of snow on the East Coast. A bomb cyclone. It's a sudden meteorological storm that kills people. And it, like, it is undeniable in its, in its fearsomeness, right, its ferocity, okay? It's a, it's a nasty, sudden, seismic event. But I would say a liberalism on the left is more like climate change. It's slowly building over time. It's more subtle, but the shift, if you're paying attention, is real. And the norms are changing. And we're a bit like boiling frogs. And by the way, what that does, as the norms change, Matthew, and the Overton window shifts, it creates the conditions in which you can have a sudden seismic event as well. They're more likely to happen. So extremism on the right is like... Uh, a bomb cyclone, a Cat 5 hurricane, extremism, liberalism on the left is like climate change. Both of them can kill you. And we need to, like, it doesn't cost anything to acknowledge this reality. And because that's the only way we're ever going to repair it. The idea that it's just, it's not both sidesing to say that both parties have a degree of responsibility. In any marriage, in any dynamic where there's more than one person, it is quite likely right, in any study of, like, human psychology, that both parties have some, have to bear some of the blame and have to work together to solve it. I want to come to the how we can stop it part of the book, but I want to talk briefly about why now, why this is happening so much now. And you note, I think, two factors that struck me particularly, one being, you know, that we are, you know, going through a phase that no democracy has previously successfully navigated, which is the founding majority becoming the minority. Um, and obviously, as, as that process is going on, that majority, former majority is using a lot of othering and hate to try and shore up its its position. And the other being, I mean, the role of the social media platforms and their failure to really police themselves properly and, and stand up against hate. Do you think those are, the t above all, the two most important factors? And obviously, the one we could probably do most about would be the second of those if they actually well, happen. I think, so I think, I think your analysis is incisive. I think, number one, it is definitely true that shifting demographics uh, combined with our kind of political system has created a very toxic, a toxic um, moment, right, where, to your point, a minority, a majority feels like it's becoming the minority and they're using different means to try to, you know, 
preserve some degree of power. I think a second thing that's happened that's unrelated, that's related but unrelated, has been the coarsening of the public discourse, specifically with politicians who now resort to, you know, tactics that, I mean, heretofore had never been introduced in the United States, or certainly not on the national level. I mean, again, the way that candidate Trump talked has now become standard discourse for candidates across the country. The way that President Trump operated has become standard discourse for a lot of elected officials. And uh, that has contributed a great deal, I think, to the polarization. So there's number, and I think, you know, in some ways it's like this quest for authenticity, Matthew, like has become the, the primary thing to the point where it, a full authenticity is the only, the only thing that people want, right? Nobody wants technocrats anymore. Nobody wants experts anymore. Everybody wants who is perceived to be the authentic real man, but that creates a kind of space. I mean, Jefferson and the founding fathers, you know, they their notion of a representative democracy was predicated upon a kind of technocrats who would learn the, who would be farmers, but would learn the mechanics of government and be responsible stewards of the democracy. It wasn't about, let's just take raw people and throw them into the mix to run things. That's, we don't have a pure democracy. We have a representative democracy. We have a republic for that reason. I think the third issue is indeed social media, which I think the media ecosystem has changed so dramatically in the past, you know, two decades plus since the passage of the Communications Decency Act in 96, which created the space for the user-generated platforms like Facebook and Instagram and others. And in large part, I would say, because these services were able from the get-go to avoid the kind of regulatory oversight that traditionally governed broadcast and radio and print and all other media, um, for that reason, number one, and number two, the basic business model and the design of these services, right, where content engineered by algorithms is able to, they can, the, the algorithms rather than the people can identify what's most popular and push it forward. Yeah, and you tell this nice anecdote about, you know, you, you're meeting with Zuckerberg and Cheryl and Sandberg and, and they're saying, you know, will our algorithms now block 80% odd of, of hate? And, and, and you, you're saying, as a former executive yourself of Starbucks, well, you know, if we said, you know, 20% of our, Coffee, only you know, 80% of our coffee uh, doesn't contain poison. That wouldn't uh, do wonders for your sales. And I mean, but do you, I mean, do you think if there was the resolve there, and, and, and you may have seen since you finished the book changes, I don't know in terms of their resolve to do anything about this, there is actually a lot they could do to, to really shift. There's no question, Matthew, there's a lot that they could do. There is just no question. Look, Facebook isn't just, we're talking to you about Facebook. This is an issue that's broader than Facebook, but to pause on Facebook for a minute. It's not just, you know, you know what's hard? What's hard is building a business from scratch that in just 16 years has more than 3 billion people using it. Like what's hard is creating a machine that's generating over $100 billion a year in revenue at like a 20, 22%, you know, net margin. You know what's hard? Building the most sophisticated, like, advertising platform in the history of capitalism. You know what's not so hard? Taking out the Nazis. I mean, like, honestly, it's a mind-bending conversation to have the people who built something so sophisticated, so innovative, 
so powerful to tell us they can't remove swastikas. You know, for kicks, Matthew, when this podcast is over, you should try to upload some copyrighted content to Facebook. Try it. See what happens. See how long it's up there. Try to post uh, a Rick at the Rick Astley song. Try to post something that's not in the public domain. It will get taken down so fast, your head will spin. But post a swastika, post something racist about black people, post something hostile about immigrants, and watch what happens or what doesn't happen. And so the reason why this isn't fixed ultimately is because the company continues to prioritize you know, profits over all else. They just do. And I'm not being rhetorical when I say that. Like literally, the driver is EPS and the driver is innovation. So it goes from, you know, Web 2.0 and the social graph to Web 3.0, you know, and the metaverse. But at the end of the day, it's about how are they maximizing shareholder value and increasing the kind of the, the public, you know, value of the business. It is not how do we protect our users? Now, by the way, why is it not? Because they're still in a growing market, and I think they deeply believe that their lack of controls or, or safeguards, Matthew, hasn't hemmed in their growth. Were that to change, they would change overnight. Now, by the way, like Matthew, talk about the GDPR and what, the U, what Europe did vis-a-vis -vis data protection, right? You've seen every website Every website changed their policies overnight to be in compliance because the penalties are too high not to. If government, whether it's in Brussels or Washington, D.C., work together to say to Facebook, you know, no more Nazis, that would literally change overnight. So other things that can be done. You, you have, can I just well, say one well, other yeah, thing? Yeah. Can I say one other thing? Mm -hmm. So, like, you were at The Economist for decades, yeah. It's not censorship when The Economist doesn't give a column to David Irving or to some white supremacist. That isn't censorship. David Irving can teach and he can write all he wants, just not in the pages of The Economist or The Financial Times. So I don't think it's censorship when we say the Nazis don't belong on Facebook. And this notion that free expression means every idea up there, like there has always been a lunatic fringe. The question is just whether you privilege it with a platform. And the editors at The Economist and the editors at the FT and the editors on the BBC say, you know what, maybe we don't need the Nazis on our show on a weekly basis. And you know, Facebook's algorithms aren't designed to, you know, exercise any degree of editorial kind of guidance like that. And so it creates this, this very negative, uh, Jim Collins would call it a doom loop, where the worst things get reinforced because they drive the most clicks, which, which makes them more attractive, so they just keeps going in the wrong direction, rather than the kind of positive flywheel that actually educates you know, the public. And I think it's deeply damaging. And the, the, we're all going to be, we're all living, we're all sorting through the debris of this media ecosystem, but I think it's done more to contaminate the conversation and to spread the hate, which again, I think is a corrosive force, which again, I think is decaying, causing the decay of our democracy. So apart from getting serious about regulation and self-regulation, ideally, uh, in, 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 this, in the platform business, which needs to face up to its you know, true role as an editing you know, platform really nowadays. It's not just a neutral platform. The algorithms are, as you say, pushing content 
at people in a directed way. You you set out in four chapters the the other things that can be done. One is sort of a personal set of techniques that, and, and philosophy uh, for standing up to hate. Another is how we should change our education system. A third concerns government, and a fourth um, is about how the business community, you know, as it, as it embraces ESG and all these other things, should regard fighting hate as, as part of its mission. I mean, where do you see? Where are you seeing most? change and most signs of progress and, and uh, on any of those responses? Well, look, I think to stop the spread of hate, you need, there's no silver bullet. I'll just say that right up front. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wrote the book to share learnings from ADL accumulated over decades, right? Um, but I'll just acknowledge right up front that there's no like magic wand we can wave, like, oh, this will fix it. It's, it requires sort of a whole of society approach. So, like, it's not something that only ADL can do or only civil society can do. We need the business community. We need faith leaders. We need elected officials. We need ordinary people. I think there are several techniques that we've seen can change hearts and minds. So, number one, I think people have to call out hate when it happens. And I say that because the best way to interrupt intolerance is to expose people to like the, 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 the price of their prejudice right there in front of them. So whether it's at the water cooler in the Facebook feed or like at the dinner table, I think the respectful ways you can engage in conversation helps someone understand why what they said was wrong. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to live on eggshells for God's sakes, but I think you can have fact-based conversations where you show a little bit of vulnerability where you can help someone understand. And we see that again and again. The thing that changed minds often is representation and not just like about marriage equality, which I referenced earlier, not just like will and grace or some thing in the media, but knowing someone who was gay, knowing someone who identified as LGBTQ is literally what people said was the single thing that changed their thinking about this. So that's number one. Number two, I think we have to cancel, cancel culture altogether, Matthew, which means I don't think we can excommunicate people for getting it wrong. I think we have to bring people in before we kick them out. And, and you have this nice phrase from cancel culture to, cult, to council culture, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. not my phrase. Don't give no. me the credit for it. It was this mm. guy, Nick Cannon, who shared it with me. And it just makes so much sense. I mean, it is not to say that we shouldn't, you know, recognize when someone does wrong, particularly people with public platforms, Matthew, where their words are like, have a, uh, an outsized or disproportionate impact. Because we've been talking, we're talking just after you've had a sort of run-in with Whippy. Goldberg, I guess, and she's that would be a classic example of how I guess you've managed you, that's turned out better than it might have done. I yeah, guess, in, in account- Goldberg said something really dumb on the on her program, The View, yesterday when she said that the Holocaust wasn't about race. I mean, I don't know if she's ever taken like a six, like a high school history class because the only thing that the Nazis talked about was race and the master race and the Aryan race and. But, you know, I think she was speaking in a very narrow sense as it relates to, like, our 21st century social construct that is race in, a, in an American environment. But, you know, racialized anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has been an issue that Jewish people have lived with for centuries and it's what led to the Holocaust. So all that being said, that doesn't mean that Whoopi Goldberg should be fired forever. It means you should give her a chance to learn. Like, we should go to the Holocaust Museum together. I should get on her show and talk to her. We should create this space for dialogue and learning. I really think so. Unfortunately, like the reflex, our cultural reflex today, Matthew, is like, yeah, did it wrong, you're gone. And I just think that's a very unhealthy 
unhealthy response. And so then I think the third thing is I think people got to get engaged and get involved. So, so again, what are these different? So take government, for example. Oh, by the way, I should say one other thing, and this gets back to my early point. Education really matters. Like we are ferocious advocates for Holocaust education because we've seen the data that shows us that when kids learn about the Holocaust or genocide, the pre and post, they have higher degrees of tolerance and higher degrees of appreciation for pluralism and things like that, lower degrees of anti-Semitism and intolerance. Like that's super healthy. So it works because <laughs> people understand, kids can understand the consequences of hate unchecked. So I think education is an important part of it. I mean, at ADL, we track the extremists and we try to identify threats and, and protect, but education is a huge part of the process. So again, number one, stop hate when it happens. Number two, council culture, not cancel culture. Number three, education, education, education. And then number four, I think people got to engage, engagement. Now, I don't mean that in a rhetorical sense. I mean, like literally, you got to show up at the school board meeting and speak out for your values. You got to get engaged in interfaith work to understand, you know, how different religious kind of groups may see similar issues and find the commonalities, not just what's different. You got to, I mean, volunteer. There are so many ways people can engage in public life. In, in a manner that increases understanding and, again, enables a more pluralistic society. Like, you know, what was his name at the, um, at the Kennedy School? Um, Robert Putnam. Bob Putnam wrote this book, Bowling Alone, years ago that in many ways presages where we are now about the disappearance, the erosion of civic life in this country, right? The disappearance of the Rotarians and the bowling leagues and the, and the bridge clubs. And I think those things... You know, they eat away at our shared space. We need more shared space that only happens when people come together. Now, what's your uh, last question here? I mean, what is your advice to people who are thinking about, uh, you know, being more committed to public service, um, maybe inspired by wanting to combat hate? And, and you're someone who's had a career that spanned politics. You've been in the White House. Uh, twice, I think, under two, two presidents, Clinton and Obama. You mm -hmm. founded an ethical business, Ethos Water, and then worked for Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now you're leading, as you say, one of the, the nation's oldest NGOs. I mean, how, how do you think about, particularly going into government, and whether, whether, how we get more of the right people in government, but more generally, how, do, how should, how can they get, how can people, how should people think about how they can um, best get involved if they want to make this their life? So I think there are a few things. Like, I don't think there is a pursuit more noble than public service. And I think ultimately it's been really unfortunate to see government, you know, demonized and denigrated in recent years. Um, you know, I think the reality is, is that my experience in working the federal government twice, these are some of the most dedicated, selfless people I've ever met. And the care that they bring to their work every day is, is deeply admirable. When they could be making money, much more money in the private sector, they've still made a decision to try to give back to their country. It's a kind of patriotism that may be, you know, not very fashionable, but I think it's so admirable. So I think if people want to get engaged in public service, like get involved, jump on a campaign, you know, Get engaged, like in a local, in local elect, run for a local elected office, or support, you know, that local, you know, election commission or school board or, you know, civic institution. I think all those things really matter. Again, I joined the Clinton campaign and lived in Arkansas, working for the governor back when I was in my very early twenties. 
but it put me on the path I'm on today. So number one, I think there is no more noble cause than public service. I think going to work for government is great. Even a few years in, doing your time uh, would, is admirable. I think secondly, you can also do public service outside of government. Like I think teaching is such a fine and noble profession. I think there are other ways that people can contribute. In some ways, I think here at ADL, like I am doing a kind of public service, even if it's not you know, working in a policy-making role, per se, as I'd done in the past. But I also would say that I think one of the things that I take away after my career is that my true North Matthew was always, I want to make it, I want to change the world. That's what I thought when I was, when I moved to Arkansas when I was 21 to work for the governor. I want to change the world. So I went and joined his campaign. But that, that impulse has never left me. So whether I was starting a business or you know, uh, working in the West Wing or now running ADL, I, I think there are multiple paths to the same destination of changing the world. Again, I think government is so noble and so important because we need people of experience and, and capability and maturity, you know, at the helm. But there are lots of ways you can be engaged in the public good. And I think people should look at what their own skill set is and what their own willingness is to take risks and give it a shot. Now, I'll, I'll say in all honesty, like, look, I had all kinds of student loans. I mean, uh, it was not easy to do when I was doing it as a, as a college student. I was a work-study student. And then as a graduate student, I had loans like you wouldn't believe. Um, and I've been lucky to have some success in business that helped me to pay those off. But, but I say that because I know how expensive it can be. But there's lots of great programs out there that can help you get um, – forbearance or can get relief on those loans when you do public service. And it's worth exploring all those options. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. I mean, the book, you know, I think what's striking is your warning that you're sounding um, to all of us, but also, you know, I think there's an idealism in there that is grounded in, in practice. And I think what did strike me is, and, and you probably want to reinforce this as, as we close, that, I mean, you have found quite a lot of evidence of things that can work. Uh, encountering hate, and I think you know, it's how we, the question now is how we can sort of muster the the idealism to really commit to doing those things. Yeah, well, I think it's both idealism, but I also think it's kind of urgent. Um, there is no natural law. There's no predetermined outcome here. And just as my grandfather or my father-in-law never would have guessed that it would happen there, that Germany would unravel or that Iran would unravel, I can't, I think most of us think this could never unravel. But like democracy is not a, you know, Matthew, democracy is not a spectator sport that you can watch from the bleachers while eating your popcorn and hope it all works out. Like you've seen the movie before, you know how it ends. Like in actuality, this is not, some, some piece of theater that we watch. This is a participatory exercise in which we have a role to play. And if we don't play that role, we do so at our own peril. And that's why I wrote the book, because we've got to roll up our sleeves and stop this if we want to keep things on the path. And I think my own, again, experience tells me if we don't do it now, Matthew, it could be too late. Well, it's a powerful book. I recommend... Uh... All, all our listeners to to read it. Um, it's it could happen here. Why America is tipping from hate to the unthinkable, and importantly, how we could stop it. Um, Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you very much for talking to Books Driving Change. Thank you.
Really, thanks so much for having me, Matthew. I'm grateful. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.